put your hands together for the late morning program with your host, Nam Ross. Hey, everybody. It's Nam Ross. The late morning program with Nam Ras, with my father-in-law, Kripamoya Das. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Very happy to be here. <laughs> um, so you're from England, so he's, you know, my, my father-in-law is visiting, and I thought to, uh, you know, have you on the podcast. You're a very interesting person. Uh, you have a lot of experience in different uh, fields, which things I like to talk about. Um, so... Yeah, well, first of all, I want to show you my t-shirt. This is a t-shirt by Nityananda Chandra in Dallas. He, uh, he made a t-shirt company. He's going to probably post the, post the link on the comments here. But uh, go check them out. They're super nice, super soft. Got some good uh, designs. And so um, he sent me a shirt. And so I could, uh, you know, put a little, put a little plug in for it. Um, but anyways, yeah, Dad, tell me, tell me about. Um, let, let's talk, talk about first your uh, introduction to spirituality, to Krishna consciousness, maybe your upbringing. So you were born in Cornwall. Yeah, if you look at the, if you look at the map of England, the long bit that sticks out like Florida. <laughs> Panhandle. <laughs> Which is not quite Florida. That's called Cornwall. Right. So really, I grew up there. Okay. And um, I was always interested in exotic Eastern things. When I was nine, I told my mom I wanted to be a, a Buddhist monk when I grew up. So she, really? She reminded me when I was much older and shaven-headed and wearing orange robes. She said, well, you told me this is what you were going to do when you were very young. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I was interested in yoga, but in Cornwall, we were sort of cut off from the metropolitan area, from the great big city of London, the melting pot of ideas. So I had to come to London in order to um, really discover people who believed in different ways. Mm. And I went to a series of uh, music festivals because I thought music festival was not only for music, but it was for the exchange of ideas, and I met different people, and I, I bumped into the Krishna followers at that time. Oh, wonderful. And how old were you at that time? Seventeen. Seventeen? Yeah. And is that, so you immediately were attracted, and you immediately joined them? Uh, I was very um, cynical. I was, I was skeptical. Mm. Because uh, I'd met many other people who told me that they had the truth and everybody else didn't. Mm. So when I met the Krishna followers, I said, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me you have the truth and everybody else is a schmuck. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, said, no, actually, uh, Krishna doesn't say that. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that every single soul is on the path towards him. Mm. So that really appealed to me. But I still retained my critical faculties because in those days, devotees were asking for a complete 100% buy-in and uh, a change of lifestyle, Mm. haircut, clothing, leaving home, living communally. Mm. There there was no alternative. So before I made that change in my life, I needed to be sure. 
So it, it took me a while. Yeah, it's interesting when you say at that time we need 100% buy-in. Mm. What do you think that's different now from when you joined? Is it not 100%? Uh, I think that we are more likely to allow someone a, a longer transition period. Right. I was allowed two weeks. Wow. You know, are you into this or, or not? Wow. If you're into it, you, you move into George Harrison's house <laughs> and, and, you, and you live with us. And if you're not into it, then you can't live with us. Right. So uh, now I think we're a little bit more understanding that uh, there's, a, there's a longer transition period where you may believe something, but you don't believe everything. I think most people are in that category. Right. And we understand that the ultimate nirvana, the ultimate achievement of spiritual perfection is a goal rather than something that you intellectually decide on. Mm. And the belief system is, is vast and very complex and so people are challenged in different ways so it, it takes time right uh, so when you joined um, did you meet the founder Srila Prabhupada um, not immediately I met his followers okay some of whom I liked <laughs> <laughs> and some of, some of whom I thought were mad yeah and some of whom I thought were quite foolish and uh, the the, the ones that I didn't particularly, that, that didn't appeal to me, and the ones that did, it was sort of a balanced bag. And so people said to me, just wait until Prabhupada comes. And then if he can't convince you, then none of us can, because we're all his followers. Right. So I waited until he came. And then by that time, I was already well on the way to, to being convinced. Wow. But the, uh, what appealed to me was the fact that I'm going to meet the founder the person who wrote all this stuff, the person who wrote the books, the person who impressed George Harrison to give him his house, yeah. the person who's, uh, you know, who's the, the perfection of this, this path. So if I meet him and I'm impressed, then I'm in. And if I don't meet him, uh, and it, well, if I meet him and I'm not impressed, then uh, I, shall, I shall know one way or the other. Wow. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. How many times did you did you meet him? About seven, seven or eight. Wow, but D different occasions. Could you give like one or a few, or like a few anecdotes, maybe like some kind of what we were talking about earlier? Um, well, maybe tell that story. That's a that's a great story. But that was that with you again? I no, 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 that no, wasn't. No. Okay, maybe one with you first. I mean, um, I suppose the first meeting was. Um, uh, I had to be. Pre I was already um, of the mindset that I wouldn't. If, if a person is a genuine spiritual teacher, I wouldn't be able to understand everything completely. Right. He may do things that I find, um, you know, just difficult to understand. Yeah. So I, um, on on the very first meeting, someone asked him a question. Someone asked Prabhupada a question. Um, and this is interesting because when I first saw Prabhupada, I was I, I got quite emotional mm. because here's a person who, um, by his uh, teaching, I've been getting up at three three o'clock every morning, right? And um, you know, I've been regulating my diet according to these people's uh, codes of behavior, yeah. 
I've been uh, reading the books. I see his image everywhere. People are talking about him everywhere. Every um, you know, every philosophical point they make is a, a Prabhupada said. Mm. And so here he is. He's just walked in the room. So I bowed my head, and immediately I, I burst into tears. It was, it was an emotional reaction. Yeah. I'm seeing him. He's here. Right. But then when I went to his first uh, speaking, there were two people who asked him questions, and he didn't seem to answer the question. He answered it obliquely. And I was a little disappointed because I thought, well, these people have been waiting for you for a whole year, and uh, perhaps you should have asked, uh, answered their question. So the first follower asked him, does Krishna ever speak Bhagavad Gita in uh, the hellish planets, the hellish realms? And he said, <laughs> he, he, t he took a side swipe at my country. He said, every time I come to Britain, it is like a hellish, <laughs> hellish realm. <laughs> he said, it is always dark, it is always cold, it is always raining. Wow. He said... <laughs> <laughs> So much so for the first question. Second question was, um, you have said that there's 8,400,000 species of life and 400,000 of them are the human form. Can you tell me something about the 400,000 different types of human? Mm. Oh, it's a good question. This is a good question. Yeah. Which is exactly what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of rubbed my hands and I thought, okay, now we're going to, we're going to get to business. Here's a good question. And Brahma said, that is not important. Wow. So I thought, well, how disappointing. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> chance to explain something. Because I also thought that that was a, a, a good question. And then Prabhupada spoke. And I could understand that the, the level at which he wanted to communicate with his disciples in that brief space of time. Firstly, he was in control of what he wanted to say. Mm. Although he asked four questions. Uh, it was... Um, he bypassed um, superficial detail of the philosophy to concentrate on the main points right. and that's what he wanted to get over to people mm. and it seemed as the years went by I noticed that that was a consistent behavior on his part there are lots of details but the main thing I want to tell you is this it's about Krishna and it's about your connection with Krishna mm. and it's about the fact that you're in Maya and that you should really try to remember Krishna, and this is how you do it. This seemed to be the main presentation. Wherever he went, whatever he was doing. Right. And now tell us that story that you told me earlier. That's a fantastic story. Well, it, w it was a story that was told to me. To, to you, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, I just think that's such an awesome it, story to share. <laughs> it was just, um, there's a phenomenon early in the morning in um, Indian cities where Let's just say the um, the restrooms aren't completely 100% uh, available right. to the poverty-stricken section of society. Yeah. Neither are there public toilets. So the early morning, um, the early morning uh, scene, as it were, um, is for people to go to a patch of wasteland or or the beach, and to, should we say, do their ablutions. <laughs> And uh, sometimes they sit in a row and they talk right? as they're, as they're doing it. So uh, if you're not careful and you're unsuspecting, in the morning you're presented with a line, <laughs> a line of, <laughs> should we say, rear ends. 
and uh, Prabhupada was out walking one day and he said just see he said they are, these poor people are not embarrassed to do what they have to do at this place yeah. in, in public yeah he said similarly he said all of you should never be embarrassed what is inside must come out so you should never be embarrassed to spread Krishna consciousness your love of Krishna is inside it must come out wow and wherever you go <laughs> In public, never be afraid to let it out. Amazing. I love that. I just love that story so much. Well, because we are, aren't we? We're, we're embarrassed. It's, it's um, even, um, there are many philosophers and many, many teachers that say that uh, religion is a private thing. Mm. And as long as you practice it in your own home, that's fine. Yeah. As soon as you start sharing your belief system with someone else, who hasn't invited you to do so, that's somehow wrong. Mm. But that's the way that great ideas are, um, uh, are broadcast. Exactly. And we are a community of people who believes that we have a set of good ideas that is worthy of a greater audience in the world. Just like if I'm the managing director of Coke, Coca-Cola, I will not flinch at putting up a sign anywhere Coca-Cola, Coke is the real thing. Right. Coke is life. Coke is anything. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that the whole universe will improve if people drink Coke mm. because that's my product. So similarly, if your product is a belief in Krishna, the Supreme Person, you you should be able to market that, advertise that anywhere, uninvited. No one has ever invited me. Did I want to see a Coke sign? Mm. No one's invited. It's just, you know, you pay for the advertising and you get it done and it's in a public place. Right. So we can't, as devotees of Krishna, we can't wait for that invitation. Prabhupada said one time, he said, um, uh, he, he was making this comparison between two words, uh, passive and aggressive. Hmm. Now, when we use the word aggressive, sometimes we mean violence, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually mean it means a positive commitment to uh, to uh, an action to uh, an external action so he said if i was passive nothing would have happened he said i have to be uh, 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 preaching as aggressive teaching sharing something as an aggressive act hmm. so we do it for materialism but sometimes when it comes to spirituality we become very um very shy yeah i guess it's yeah i guess it could be the lack of faith in the person in the practitioner for them because i or it could i mean yeah what do you think it's, is it a lack of well, faith or or embarrassment you know there's a there's a there's a great little film of um buddhist buddhist monks being buddhist buddhist monks being trained in the art of debate yeah and uh, what happens is that uh, they, 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 they take the entire monastery and they, they pair up. And one Buddhist monk will make a proposition and the other Buddhist monk will try and defeat it with a Sanskrit quotation uh, or logic or a greater, another appeal to reason. And so they practice this. And I think sometimes, although we may be personally convinced in our own Swadhyaya, our own private reading. Mm. We're not uh, we're not exercised generally as devotees in the art of tarka, which, or argumentation and debate. Mm. 
and so we become flummoxed when uh, presented with even the the most simple question. Definitely, yeah. Or the most simple challenge to Krishna consciousness. We we may feel that we have to retreat or be nice. Right. Yeah. I want to come back to that, um, but first, more about you personally. So you you kind of came in contact with Krishna devotees when you were 17. Then you, I assume you, I mean, you you traveled in throughout Europe, uh, throughout Europe and England, and and spread you know Krishna consciousness with book distribution and yeah. chanting in the street and etc. And then um, and then eventually you got married, and you've been married for now. To cut to cut a long story short. To cut a long story short, yeah, <laughs> a yeah. very long wanna, story. Yes, yes. The. Uh, um, You've been married now for 36, 36 years. Thirty-six years. Yeah. Thirty-six years. Congratulations on Thank that. That's a, a great, a great example <laughs> for for us all. Um, and then, uh, so right after Srila Prabhupada's departure, when he, when he passed away in in seventy-seven, uh, you 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 weren't married yet, but then. Um, what was the what was the atmosphere like after after his leaving? Um, I would say, um, for me and the people around me, which is the only people I can comment on, the the atmosphere was um, of a, a a great vacuum. Mm -hmm. And uh, before uh, the reason I ask that is yeah. because a lot of people left at that time, and a lot of people um, couldn't continue their faith because because of that. Shri Prabhupada was such a part of them, was I, such a part of their faith. Yeah. So I want to understand for for those who have been around for so long, you've been around forty plus years. Like, what kept you going after his departure? First of all, I think that. Um, Part of our history has been created for us by revisionist historians. A revisionist historian is someone who takes something and uh, wants to create a fresh narrative. Right. And um, it's usually to serve his own interest. There's usually some political persu persuasiveness. Mm. And so um, it makes sense for a revision his uh, revisionist historian to create this image that um, Prabhupada left and immediately thousands of his followers left. Uh, it wasn't the case. I'd say the attrition rate was slow. It was a trickle okay. over maybe five to seven years. Oh, really? And much of that was uh, natural because people were, you know, the average the age of the average disciple was uh, Prabhupada had 4,800 disciples the average age of them was uh, you know, should we say at that time it was 25 to 28 so some of them they didn't leave Krishna consciousness they didn't leave Prabhupada but they uh, left the communes that we had created oh I see in order to restart their education in order to um, you know, to uh, begin a family, and that you couldn't do. The average size of um, our temples in 1976, from records that we have, was sort of a suburban house with um, the average was 15 to 20 people. Mm -hmm. And you can't fit many more people in a suburban house. So if you got married, you had to have alternative accommodation. To have alternative accommodation, you have to have a job. To have a job, you have to have qualifications. So these things, qualifications, job, and alternative 
um, accommodation is a package of items that really you most people had to travel some distance away from the temple to do that mm. but um, so I, I think it's a, 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 a skewing of history if we say that there was this immediate uprising right people okay that couldn't take to you know and um, often it's said that um, you know the new Iskon gurus the 11 zonal acharyas right made life um, so difficult for people that they had to leave it just wasn't the case it wasn't the case really until um, the crunch I would say came in 85 mm. 85 85 or 86 you could say okay which was you know nine years so nine years later many people made that that choice because of that particular reason interesting yeah uh, so and was a, the, the, the pre pre that time we had an organization that was run by one person and then after that time we had an organization run by 11 or some people say 11 organizations that were very loosely tied together yeah yeah i personally i think that um i felt like that was a really powerful thing to have the one the one teacher or one acharya for yeah. a sick a section because you you even see that naturally now like there are some gurus that frequent certain places and they're basically the acharya of that certain yeah. place yeah um it was well you know sorry to interrupt no no, no please it no. was it was sort of um Prabhupada's idea but there was uh, he had said um his expression was you become initiated by whoever is nearest right so there was there was we don't know exactly what he meant, but there was some type of geographical pragmatism involved in that it's not that a devotee living in Fiji should really have to travel to Sweden in order to find a guru. Right. Let's keep things practical and let's, you know, let's... let's e so each of the areas of the world, zones as we call them, would have one person. However... What happened was that those persons, as time went by, uh, forced those who could not see them to, in the light of being a guru, or rather could not see them as a guru, they were more or less, should we say, pressured or socially, socially obliged mm. to take that person as a guru. So there was some coercion and some, uh, some um, negative energy was created by that. But the original idea was that uh, was that whoever is nearest would chant on the beads and give you a name, as it was from maybe 1972 all the way through to 1977. Right. We had that system. Right. So we already had a, a zonal system. And Prabhupada's idea was that the, the GBC members that he had, they would become gurus and they would complete the function by chanting on the beads and giving a name. And already before he passed away the name did not have to be sent uh, to him mm. so we had that uh changing gears a little bit let's, um, let's change gear yeah we'll come back to this I, I love the guru the guru talk and i also want to you know you're an author as well so i'd like to uh introduce people to your book and and everything but um so now your service has been for a number of years to develop congregations mm -hmm. And specifically at Bhaktivedanta Manor, right? Uh, so, coming to America, uh, 
where I personally think the congregations are less developed. Um, what has been your observation of American, um, ISKCON in America? Uh, and, and, you know, people say, oh, you know, there's only Indians, there's only Indians uh, that are running the temples and it's, ISKCON is changing, it's not the what it used to be mm. uh, and things like that. So wh- what is, like, what's been your observation and what do you, what do you think about that? Mm. Of course, my, my observation of ISKCON in America is very limited. <laughs> it's very, very limited to one of the, I mean, y- one or at the most two of the 50 states. <laughs> I mean, you went to New Vrindavan recently for I the mantra retreat after, you know, uh, after since 80, 82 or something, you yeah, had been yeah. to New Vrindavan. That's a different New Vrindavan, I would yeah. say. <laughs> so let's say, let's say I've seen three of the states <laughs> very briefly. But um, d- d- to me, there's, there's, uh, there's different realities and these realities apply to any of our ISKCON branches all over the world. One is that um, whereas in the past 95% of devotees lived communally, mm. now 95% don't. Yeah, outside the temple. And so that's a new reality and it's a new ISKCON and we have to, to deal with that. And although we are a um, you know, a broadcast organization, you know, to systematically propagate. That's the first line of our seven purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, we do that, but then broadcast is an old agricultural term. It means to take a basket of seeds and to throw them into the field. But when the seeds begin to grow, then you have to be much more concerned with watering, sunshine, pulling out the weeds and generally scaring off any creatures that could come and eat the new shoots. Mm. I think that wherever ISKCON has successfully um, broadcast, then they need to be good farmers and look after the tender shoots. Interesting. So that means providing support services to those people who have said, um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm into this. To, to me, people divide into some very simple categories. Seekers of the truth, People who've decided that Krishna, that's one. Two is people who've decided that Krishna consciousness at least answers the majority of their questions. Right. Three, people who are chanting on a daily basis. And uh, fourth category is people who've made a commitment of some kind. Hmm. Might be just a commitment to chant four rounds, or it might be, you know, second initiation, whatever it is, it's a commitment. Right. So what are the spiritual services that those people in each of the four categories needs? It's like a, you've just, you've just had a new baby. You will know that babies, uh, you know, they, they need different types of maintenance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they, need, they need different services, you know, and they, they need baby food. Yeah. They can't eat the same as other people. They can't chew. Why? Because they have no teeth. So when people come to any form of spiritual life, be it ourselves or be it other, any other religion, in the beginning they have no teeth. Hmm? Vedanta. Vedanta. Vedanta, yeah. They don't, they don't have a very sharp way of chewing over the philosophy. So they need uh, guidance and they need tuition. They need support services. And the main thing people need is encouragement. Encouragement means uh, to give courage. And the reason you give courage is because, in fe- because a person feels afraid of taking the next step in spiritual life because it will 
it will involve leaving something that they are comfortable with to something that they may be uncomfortable with. Mm. So it's either in philosophical terms, belief, faith issues, or it may be in um, the practice. So if you're prepared to um, give people a long transition period, you'll know that they need appropriate levels of encouragement and support according to their period. So first thing we have to do in our agricultural phase of ISKCON is to listen to people, to find out what they like and what they don't like, what they have issues with, what they're worried about, what they're afraid of. I always tell people that um, being a good preacher, uh, teacher, outreacher, <laughs> use, use whichever word you like. Mm -hmm. If you don't like preach, um, is to be nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. To be, to be nice. N-I-C-E. N means what a person's needs. So find out what a person's needs are. I means what are they interested in, in Krishna consciousness, in spiritual life. What, what interests them? Develop that. See what are their concerns? What are they worried about? Deal with that. And E is what are their expectations? What do they expect you to be for them? What do they expect you to do for them? Try and over, over satisfy someone's expectations rather than under satisfy them. Yeah. And you'll always have a satisfied congregation. Congregation just means people who are who consider themselves to belong to something and who come together occasionally to celebrate it, talk about it, um, enjoy it, like that. It could be a society of. Uh, you know, pump, pumpkin appreciators, okay? <laughs> Society of pumpkin appreciators. What do they do? Well, they come together and they talk about pumpkins. Right. They may not be, they may not live in each other's houses. They may not live communally, but that doesn't mean that they're not interested. So my belief, uh, my belief is that um, the Krishna community worldwide has a lot more people than we believe we have because of the success of our outreach. And the second phase that is really upon us now um, in Europe and America, being those places that got Krishna consciousness first, is to alter the way we look at the results. Let's, let's give ourselves a slap on the back for our uh, achievements. Brilliant. Yeah. Realize, but realize that we have to do a different type of work now. Mm. They may not always all be about selling books because some people have got the books. In fact, we have sold or distributed, however you like to phrase it, we have five, more than five, six hundred million books. That's more than any other spiritual organization apart from um, Christianity and Islam. So what do we do with that statistic? Yeah. That means some people have read the books. Let's hope to God that some people have read the books. <laughs> because if no one's read them, then <laughs> we're, we're distributing the wrong book. Right. Or um, a slightly more complex book than people you know, have uh, the appreciation for. So if people have read them and they've appreciated them, which I believe they have, because I used to work in the capacity of a person who was, um, before the internet days, uh, myself and my wife used to, uh, answer all the letters from people who had received books. Oh, really? Yeah. So we would be able to gauge which book produced the most results. And also, 
we'd get to hear from people almost instantly. Instantly in those days was within a month. Right. And uh, they would tell us, look, I, I like this book. What do, I, what do I read now? What do I do now? And where do I go now? Yeah. My, my belief is that, um, you know, Iskand also has to be very careful because all these questions, what do I do, what do I read, where do I go? People try to answer that by Google. And when you Google Iskand or Hare Krishna, you may not always get the most helpful um, body of information. Definitely. People, because now we have a history. We now have 50 years of history. And some of it has been quite colorful. <laughs> and and not, not always so helpful. Yeah. So the idea now is that we, we, Iskand's face needs to be more personal. And we have to meet, meet with people personally. And each person, dare I mention the word, has to be a guru. Each person has to be a guru? Each person has to be a guru, in the sense of Amara, Agyai, Guru. Yeah. Um, you have to have some personal responsibility yeah. for the person who's in front of you. Definitely. In other words, that we have left it far too long to just a slender number of um, charismatic leaders to take on the role of encouragement and having a sense of propriety for um, people or, or temple presidents to manage those people. And that's not good enough. Yeah, it's something like 70, something 80, almost 80 gurus for a society that has, what, hundred, hundreds of thousands of people? Yeah. Well, the point is that we don't know. We don't, we don't know. Yeah. Even, yeah. even Dr. Burke Rochford doesn't know. Right. In fact, nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows how successful we are. Yeah. Or how much of a failure we are. But those who want to present ISKCON as being a failure, they will say, just see, all the temples in America are empty. Now, from the three temples that I've seen, the American temples, are, they're not empty. In fact, they're... they're buzzing with dynamism there's a lot going on yeah there is but if you want to have that view you can have that view and no one can counteract that view counter that view because we don't know how many members we have okay and why do you not know how many members you have every temple knows how much money it has usually it doesn't have <laughs> and you know how many people come to the temple on a sunday and you may know how many books you've sold but worldwide, if you don't know how many members you have, it's probably because you're not counting them. And usually you, you, you count what you value. So if you value something, you count it. Just like, I like, I like pumpkins, so I can count them. One, two, three, four, we have them here. Or I can count how many minutes this interview will go on because right. we have to fit into a certain time. Right. We're counting, we're counting everything except the numbers of members we have. That's really interesting. What does that mean? It means it's an organization that Really, we don't care because a broadcast organization doesn't really care so much how many seeds go out. You see? As long as the seeds are going out. We measure how many seeds go out rather than how many sprout up. See? Wow. But a farming organization, a gardening organization, seeds, that's interesting. But the most important thing is how many plants do we have? What has what sprouted? What do we need to take care of? Okay, well, a question for you. So, the, the, the real question is, who's supposed to do that? Is it the gurus? 
where we have a ratio of, you know, as you say, 80, 90 gurus or, or sannyasis, if you want to include everybody, 130, 150 charismatic leaders who are taking personally the responsibility of uh, looking after people. It's impossible ratio. So it means really that every member, every member has to be a harvester, every member has to be a gardener, an encourager, a guider, an enhancer of people's spirituality. So it means, it means that each of us should be able to say, if I come to you and I say, how's your spiritual life? The answer is usually, um, well, you know, I, I'm chanting this number of rounds, or I'm getting up at this time in the morning, or I'm, this is my service, etc., like that. But as devotees, I, I really think we should ask each other a question: How was your, how was your cultivation? Mm. Who are you looking after? You know, who are you helping? Right. Because at the end of it, a movement is really all about a movement. And a movement is dynamic. You know, when I was when I was a kid, I was uh, when I was thirteen. There was this big festival in upstate New York called Woodstock, <laughs> <laughs> and I had the poster, uh, the movie poster, on my wall, and I was I was so entranced by that because I thought I want to be part of a movement. I want to be part of a movement that will change the world, you know, and. Um, the key thing that interested me in ISKCON was that it was a movement that would change the world. Right. At least that's what they told me. But now, how do you know if you're changing the world? Well, by the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong. <laughs> okay, that's how you know that Woodstock was a phenomenal thing in the history of the USA, because there were so many people involved. So, if an organization doesn't know how many people it has, then it may not be a movement, it may be a, a, a church that's not really communicating to its members. And that, that I would say is the only problem that we have. We're hoist by our own um, success. I really like the point you made that we need to change the way we look at our results. Yeah. That's super interesting to me because for as long as I've known, it's always been how many people are coming to the feast or something or mm. how many books have gone out mm. how many Lakshmi points <laughs> which is such a funny term how many Lakshmi points or you know or how many people shaved up or how many people became bhaktas or something so see, we really need to rethink that yeah see in 1973 um, Prabhupada wrote a letter in 1973 Prabhupada wrote a letter to yeah. um, us in England I, I wasn't there, but I inherited the results of that letter when I came the following summer. He said, in every town you go, do these six things. Distribute my books, give out some free information, give out a small quantity of prashadam, answer people's questions, go on Harinam Sankirtan, singing in the streets, and organize an event, a meeting, in a house, an office, place of work, or in a hall. And do these things and go everywhere and teach without um, anxiety. So his point was do these six things because these, these six things represent the, 
you know, the full reaching out to people. Um, and Tribhuvanath took that up. Tribhuvanath was an old friend of mine who actually brought me to Krishna consciousness from a from a, a rain-soaked pop festival, not mm. once but twice, actually. It's quite a famous devotee in England. Very famous devotee, yeah. Because he, um, you know, he took it upon himself to, to intervene in what people were doing in order to bring them to to, to Krishna. And um, so he took that instruction and he created a festival program in which there was prasadam and singing and books and answering people's questions, etc. And then in 19, the early 70s, there was a push for book distribution because America had started doing big book distribution. Yeah. And um, Prabhupada was, he was writing letters and he was giving talks about book distribution and Sankirtan and everyone should go out on the Sankirtan party. So Tribhuvanath was a little confused because Prabhupada had also written to him about how much he appreciated the festival program. So on a morning walk, he said to Prabhupada, Prabhupada, do you like book distribution and you also like festivals? Should we stop festivals and just do book distribution? And Prabhupada, Prabhupada stopped walking and he turned around to him as he, as he did sometimes in order to make a point. Yeah. He pointed his cane at him and he said, no, everything should go on side by side. Hmm. And I think that got lost. And it got lost as ISKCON went from being a pioneering organization to a group that needed to maintain the buildings that it had rented yeah. or, or bought. So the only brahminical things that you do don't often bring in money. Hmm. You know, yajana, yajana, patana, patana. There's only two of those six that bring in money for a Brahmin hmm. or bring in wealth. So similarly, singing in the streets doesn't bring in money. Answering people's questions, <laughs> a whole program, giving out prasadam, you're all giving, giving, giving. Yeah. The only thing that brings it in is when you, um, you sell a book, that's a commercial activity. And so the other five got diminished in favor of the one that we, we knew was, you know, not only pleasing, but also had cash benefits. So I, I think that um, we, we need to rejoice actually in everything that Prabhupada has given us and to not um, to not rely on the uh, on the history of ISKCON and what we perceive as being um, the models that we used as being our permanent legacy Prabhupada talked about his American boys and girls as being um, creative, he said what's the point he said one time, what's the point of being being an American if you don't use your American brain to um, do something glorious, to do something wonderful? Yeah. So we did it before, and uh, you know we, we can do it again. America can become the world leader quite easily. Mm. You know, it's, it's, you're born an American for a particular reason. Right. Leadership. And so leadership and spirituality is, is there. And I don't think it's a problem that our temples are somewhat, should we say, eth ethnocentric <laughs> at the moment. It's a phase. Really? You think so? Yeah, it's a phase. There, there are other phases. Because um, I, I'll give you an example that um, in, in London, um, Prabhupada started a temple, we had started a temple near the British Museum. Right. Oh, I love that 
and there Bury was Place, right? Bury Place. And there was another place called Notting Hill. They made a movie about this place. Trendy, upmarket. And uh, a lot of alternative thinkers were there in the 1960s, early 70s. So Prabhupada wanted also a temple there because the devotees were telling them the, re the reception was always good in Notting Hill. So he, he started making arrangements for a set of Radhakrishna deities to come from Delhi to go to this new temple. And then uh, someone, you know, said to Prabhupada, well, Prabhupada, <laughs> it's kind of like you may not re realize this, but Notting Hill is only four miles away, five miles away from the very place temple where we already have a temple. He said, he said, uh, he said, London is so big. He said, you could have 10 temples there easily. Hmm. So he was admonishing the devotees for thinking small. And I think that what we may have done is that when we have one or two temples per state, we're thinking that's it. The preaching work is done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One or two. Well, we have a, you know, we have one temple in New York, two temples in New York now. We have a couple in New Jersey. That's it. We're covered. Yeah. Anybody who wants to take up Krishna consciousness can come to those temples. Yes, they can, but you have to understand that only if a person is really, really interested do they travel 80 miles, 100 miles, 200 miles round trip. Yeah. It's, it's, we're asking people to do a lot. It's true. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk a bit about your your book. You're an author, and I wanted to talk a bit about this book. So this book is called the Guru and Disciple Book. It's a, it's a very comprehensive book. I read half of it. I uh, haven't got to you know life has been busy, but uh, it's a wonderful book about the relationship between guru disciple, the history of gurus uh, in ISKCON as well as just in India as well. Um, what 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 you know what what uh made you kind of want to write a book like comp as this comprehensive about such a seemingly simple idea of just a guru and a disciple mm, it's a simple idea isn't it but yeah <laughs> it's it's surprising how we can get it wrong right oh really get it wrong huh well we can get it so badly wrong right yeah yeah you know the guru disciple is a a very simple thing but as um one um psychologist, spiritualist, commentator said, for the Western mind and culture it is not egosyntonic. Egosyntonic means it's it's not compatible so much with our sense of who we are, that we need someone in our life that's a guru figure. So we struggle with that a little bit. Whereas in the Eastern world every family has a guru. <clears throat> and you, you, you sort of it's as part of life as you as you live it. So I noticed that I was getting asked the same questions over and over again. So uh. I, I thought, I, and, and the questions were in three, three categories. Um, what is a guru? How do I find one? What am I looking for? Uh, I've heard that there's some bad gurus mm. in gone in the past. Um, what went wrong? You know, there generally in those areas. And if, if I do have a guru, what will I be expected to do? So those sort of questions. We started um, a, a course before the ISKCON Disciple course came out 10 years ago, 11, 12 years ago now. We started a one-day course because people needed to have some education in these things. So it was a course about the guru-disciple relationship. Six hours in which we took them through the main Sanskrit 
um, text related to uh, Guru Disciple, some modern history of ISKCON. ISKCON is really, it's only one organization which has sought to transplant the Guru Disciple relationship from an Eastern context, cultural context, to the West. And, um, you know, the, the, the question we had to ask ourselves is, how have we done? Mm. You know, because from the 60s through to now, there's a lot of transplantation going on. So have the trans when you transplant something from one pot into another pot, sometimes some of the leaves fall off. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, we weren't alone in getting it wrong sometimes. So uh, we had to tell our students something about that and give them some practical, classical advice as well as some modern advice about what does it mean to be a disciple, what is a guru supposed to do for you, what, what is expecting too much, what is expecting not enough, how does it all work into your life. So generally they were, they were, they were quite happy. But there were some outstanding questions that I thought could have been dealt with in further depth. And then there were some myths, you know, some myths in, in ISKCON. And I thought that I would pop the bubble of, of myths. And uh, that's what I did in um, one section of this book. And um, there was also some consistent ways in which ISKCON was kind of shooting itself in the foot, you know, over the years. And um, I felt we had to reinvestigate uh, Vaishnav history to see if there was better ways of, of doing something. Mm. Because we used to be a small organization run by one very powerful person. And now we're a very large organization run by, um, you know, many uh, multifaceted galaxy of <laughs> galaxy of persons. So how does it all work? How does it all fit together? Yeah. So I looked at the Sri Sampradaya, I looked at what Ramanuja did, and uh, some of that was very interesting. Philosophically, I know that we're different, but structurally, uh, uh, as far as uh, maintaining the health, the spiritual health of um, uh, sannyasis, uh, particularly, which we unfortunately didn't have a completely clear history of doing, um, looking after congregation, are there any things that we could learn? And so um, I did that research, and I, I found that some some interesting ideas. Wow! Uh, when you talk about myths, um, could you give an example? Um, well, I, the the major myth is that only sannyasis should initiate disciples. Yeah, it's like it's like once you take sannyas, it's like you're you're expected to take on disciples but or. If you're a grahasta, you you can't. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is this. Uh, you know, the, the history actually goes back to um, uh, the time when um, Buddhists took over, because the, the sannyasis they didn't initiate. They couldn't initiate because uh, they were traveling. Mm. So to teach um, shlokas, uh, which was the traditional way of teaching anything. It was by call and response. So the guru chants the shloka and the disciple responds, just like we do every day in the Bhagavatam class. Yeah. At least, uh, you know, several times. And you, you learn the texts by recitation. 
and you learn recitation when you're young. So what it means that the guru-disciple relationship begins usually at the age of eight, between eight to 12, you become initiated. And then you go to the guru and the guru teaches you. Now, in order for that to happen, the guru has to be in one place. Yeah. Because the guru has to provide shelter, lodging, clothing, and food to the young disciples. So that is a traditional relationship there. And he, he and his wife can only do that if they're supported by local villages or by the king. Now, Sanyasi leads a completely different type of life. He's mm. traveling. He's only allowed to stay three days in one place. Mm. Um, so he didn't initiate. So uh, along comes Buddhism. And Buddhism borrows from the sannyasis by... Um, well, the sannyasis during the monsoon season, they live in a place called a guha, or a cave. You know, they, they're a convocation of sannyasis. They, they flock together and they live together. So Buddhism borrowed that... Um, but instead of doing it for four months, they did it for 12, and they lived in the cities. So Buddhism gradually took over India by capturing the major cities and setting up universities for the teaching of not only spiritual life, but also secular mm. life. In other words, you'd go to a Buddhist university in the morning, you would, you would learn texts. In the afternoon, you would learn architecture or accounting or, or medicine. Right, and that's how, and then the disciples would go all over India. So Shankaracharya wanted to drive Buddhism out of India, both with philosophy, but also with, um, with uh, uh, you know, the, the, a similar arrangement. So Shankaracharya, who was born in eight hundred, around eight hundred A.D., he brought the san his sannyasis back into the city, and he began um, initiating and, and teaching. The sannyasis didn't travel as much as before. They were in one place. And that gradually took over from, uh, from Buddhism. And then came the Vaishnavas who did a similar, similar thing. But um, uh, Vaishnavism has never had an exclusivity of sannyasis giving uh, teaching. Teaching simply means that uh, you, know, you, 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 you begin a, a course of teaching with an initiation, that's mm -hmm. what it means. So Ramanuja Acharya, when he was passing away, he chose 74 gurus to succeed him in initiation and teaching, and he distributed them widely around uh, India. And so um, I thought that was very interesting because 74 is a very, you know, you really mean business. So some of them were sannyasis, and, but most of them were grihastas. And that line has continued down to the present day. So it's a very good way of having a good geographical reach, making initiation available to all, which is, initiation is nothing more than a, a, a teaching strategy. That's, that's all it is. Um, but in, in ISKCON, because of the, the, the blueprint that we had, the template that we had, we had a single acharya, sannyasi, uh, renounced mm. traveling and initiating and doing everything so we've modeled everything on that my ch my challenge would be that it's no longer practicable to keep that model as the only model right sannyasis are becoming exhausted physically and mentally oh yeah it's very expensive and uh we would we would do better to to look at that 
it's good for pioneering. In other words, sannyasis are good for teaching and opening up new borders. But for consolidated teaching and, and caring for congregation, then the grihastas have to step up to, to, to look after things. That's, that's, is that what you mean by shooting them yourself in the foot type? Well, shooting ourselves in the foot, I, we, we, people look at ISKCON and they say we have a guru problem, but actually we have a sannyasi problem, if anything, or we have had, in the sense that sannyasis are meant to um, move away from dhanam, janam, and sundarim. But a sannyasi in ISKCON is immediately given dhanam, janam, and sundarim. Dhanam, janam, sundarim meaning? Power, wealth, the attention, the female attention in the form of followers. Mm -hmm. All these things are meant to be, sannyasi is meant to move away from those things. All right. Traditional definition of sannyas. So if you re rejig the, um, uh, the, the characteristics of sannyas to say that it has money, fame, power, tuition, initiation, women followers, then uh, management. Um, uh, responsibility. Then, then what you're saying is you're you're foisting uh, an undue level of responsibility on someone who was really meant to be a simple monk. Right. You know. So that's that's very interesting. Uh, this is not. I'm not criticizing him. Oh, of course, no, I'm no. Just, I'm just saying that we 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 shouldn't be surprised if we have problems if you're making someone do something that their life, their way of life wasn't designed for that. True, all. yeah, that's true. Um, now, talking more about grihastas, um, you know, you raised three very nice children and you had been married for so long. Tell us a little bit about uh, some, of the, uh, some of the ways you went about it that you feel were successful and what young grahasas like me and whoever's watching we can look out for when we you know become parents or become husbands and wives like you you've also counseled many you know marriage married couples so what what kind of trends have you seen where things are you know going wrong or things that are, are done right or whatever i would say that um you know, on the on the negative side, we have um, situations where um, a young couple, um, young Grihasta uh, team, young family. Um, I would say they don't often get the level of support that they require. Okay. Often because it's a, a new situation. For the first few years of your married life, it is um, a very new situation that you have to struggle to uh, accommodate new realities. At that point, you need a, a senior person to, to help you. It's someone who's, someone who's been uh, married for some time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second thing I'd say is that um, often when we try to um, um, disentangle ourselves from material energy, we, we draw a line between Maya and Krishna. And for our children, we may also try to do that. This is, this is very wrong, this is, this is right. But in doing so, we may set up a very sharp uh, duality where it's impossible for them to reconcile the world in which they're living with the world in which you want them to live. Mm, interesting. We don't have um, 
every child is a unique individual and so requires um, the parent to understand their level of attraction or not for, um, for Krishna. Prabhupada said that attraction for Krishna is natural within a child, but that needs to be developed, and it's developed through through nature rather than uh, in, in spite of it. Hmm. Third is um, to understand that a, a child coming to Krishna consciousness does so in a different way than an adult does. Many of us were converts to Krishna. We, in other words, we... we we reached a point in our life where we, we had to find spirituality. Mm. And we did so and we made a choice. Some of us became Buddhists and some of us became Christians and so on. There, there, was, a, there was a point of conversion. Our children may not have such a point in their life. So we, at the same time as allowing them to be in the world and find their own um, horizons, we cannot depend on them making a a conversion choice when they're 16, 17, 18 it, it may never come so I do talk with some devotee parents who say well I don't know if my child wants to be a devotee of Krishna I'm just waiting until they're 18 and they, make, they can make their own choices like I did no, it may not happen like that our job is to really give them the best possible understanding of how material nature, spiritual nature and our connection with the two uh, fit together and um, that's, our, that's our duty as parents to illuminate our children, to enlighten them but with compassion and love and fun mm. you know Krishna consciousness for the grown ups is uh, it, it involves hard choices it involves giving up things. Yes. But for children, <laughs> they have to, you know, the, the very idea of giving something up is alien to them. So you have to find what is the most pleasing for them that will remind them of Krishna, what is the most fun for them. So games, theater, puppet shows, books, storytelling, trips, you know, anything can be used to develop love of Krishna in a, a, a very gradual way so an adult is an adult and a child is a child mm -hmm. we're both trying to be Krishna conscious but the, ad, the way the adult helps the child become Krishna conscious is by padam 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 by slow degrees so you used all those things when, when you were raising well, your children I think so uh, uh, I think so we, we tried to however my, my wife is more of the um, children's educator than, than I ever was right so there was a good deal of, should we call it, homeschooling without being official homeschooling. And my wife went on to become headmistress of the primary school mm -hmm. where uh, our third child then, then went. But first, second, third children, they all had their mother's influence in their life much more than, much more than mine. So um, there is a, there's an old Chinese story. A man comes to a goldfish and he asks the goldfish, he says, well, how's the water? And the goldfish looks at him and says, what water? <laughs> there's, there's, there's water all around him, mm. but he can't see it. So Krishna consciousness is like that. When you grow up in an atmosphere of <laughs> Krishna consciousness, yeah. it shouldn't be a strain. 
there should be no um, you know f certainly not a physical coercion or an emotional blackmail of children in order to to, to, to coerce them but it, um, if it's fun then they will they will take it up right your job is to make it fun as a parent yeah Appro age appropriate always age appropriate fun definitely um is there a reason why you i mean having i've had to have one children and it's like big deal uh you you think that um their upbringing had did some did having more than one child have a, have something to do with the the way they were raised and the way they are now well you know i i speak to some young couples and they say um Yes, no, no, we're married, but both of us have come to a decision that we're not going to have children. Right. And we feel that we've made that decision based on um, our spiritual commitment. Again, I think that's um, a misuse of the ashram, just as much as a sannyasi who is advised to take on female attention and power and money. Money, and influence. yeah. Mm -hmm. Would, the Grihasta ashram is for having children. That's why you do it. If you don't want to have children, uh, if you can't have children, that's one thing. But if you if you say that you don't want children, right. then don't become a grihasta. Why are you why are you doing that? Interesting. Yeah. It means it's it's a height of selfishness to do that. The whole point of being a grihasta is to have children. And uh, then some um, some grihastas just have one child. But um, uh, that's all right. But we we really need to understand that um, you, you can have more and Western Europe um, America um, Scandinavia many countries now there are many couples living without children and um, or deciding not to have children or not being married or you know and the situation is that we we have reached a kind of tipping point where if people in those countries don't start having more children as they used to pre-1967 uh, then we shall, uh, we shall have a problem, just even a financial problem, political problem because in any society the young working people have to pay for the old people mm. and it's already at a point now where we don't have enough young working people to pay for the elderly, the costs of the elderly. So any society that doesn't have children will implode mm. eventually. So in ISKCON now we're on a third generation and we have to see that um, you know, having more children is not a crime, having more children is not a problem, but you can actually benefit the society by having more children, especially if those children are devoted to Krishna or have an affinity for Krishna or, or those who, who love Krishna. Yeah, I, I mean, you at least want to replace yourself, like you and your wife, to for the future. If you want to replace yourself, that's two children. Right, that's two children, yeah. And if you want to be of more service to society, that's three. Yeah. So we have, um, you know, we have some work to do. <laughs> yeah. But the, di the difficulty is that we, we find that many of our members are disinclined. In other words, renunciation is the, uh, the, the ideal. But renunciation is ideal, the ideal for the renunciates. Renunciation is not the ideal for those who are married. Mm -hmm. Because they're, 
<laughs> their prescription is a different way of dealing dealing with the world mm. which means that we will ha we would have bigger communities and uh, in the future we'll have more people to uh, to to uh, to teach others the 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 joyful life of Krishna consciousness definitely um, what else I didn't uh, what's the time One oh eight. What else did I want to ask you about? Oh yes, okay. Um, there are a lot of couples that that don't get married because, uh, or they, you know, they don't have this Vedic samskar for marriage. Mm. That it's not important. Um, what would you say to that? Being a priest, you you you've you've done thousands of marriages. Or so that they can't afford it. Well, that's what they say. Mm -hmm. So what 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 do you um, what do you feel is important about getting married, or having that kind of some scar, or impression? Uh, well, it's it's it's, it's very simple. If um, uh, you, you say that Iskand is a spiritual movement, but it's also a uh, religion. Religion comes from the word relegare, which means to tie together, to bind together. Mm. So when we are bound together as a society, we, we, we follow common principles and common rules. And uh, we honor each other by our different status in society. So the married status is usually one which is um, where a person has an emotional um, financial, uh, sexual, uh, and publicly witnessed union, right. and that is often accompanied by the blessings of God invoked upon the couple by the congregation, and um, it would be a, it would be a great shame actually if if ISKCON was the only religion in the world that didn't have weddings. Specifically, when the founder Acharya introduced a very simple form of Vaishnav wedding, and uh, some people give different reasons, and it's unfortunate that sometimes they sound very, very reasonable reasons, very philosophical reasons. Mm -hmm. But there is no philosophical reason that can um, be extended over and above Shastra. Shastra is the, you know, that's where it all stops. So Shastra says that there are four ashrams mm -hmm. and there is a ceremony for entering into each one and a very simple ceremony for um, a married couple or a couple to become married. Um, there's only a few ingredients. One is that the father gives permission and then the groom is honored. The couple make their vows. There is a sacred fire. They walk around the fire. They take the seven steps and the congregation bless them. That's a Vaishnav wedding. Mm. So for that, it costs some firewood, some ghee, some rice, some flowers, yeah. a banana, and uh, perhaps feeding the devotees who, who come. It's not difficult. There really is no reason not to do it. But Kali Yuga is a yuga in which people live together simply for convenience and pragmatism. And so what happened is that when our devotees themselves become influenced by the external uh, community, uh, what happens is that we start living like them. So living together 
means that there is uh, an escape door in the relationship. It means that if I live with you um, and I don't like it after some time, I can I can walk out that door because I'm not legally bound and I'm not religiously bound. Right. And um, sometimes, uh, and I'm afraid to say this, that sometimes our even our leaders sometimes have either knowingly or unknowingly condoned this state of affairs, mm. not wishing to have um, the sanctity of the fire yagya challenged by yet another divorce. And so um, people are becoming legally married, but without being religiously married. Mm. So this is a very sad state of affairs. It means that our culture is, we're, we're losing our culture. And uh, for a young couple not to be married, I think, is, is missing out on the great blessing that a firm religious commitment makes. Now, they may say that, um, well, you know, Krishna knows. And if Krishna's in our heart and we're making a promise to each other, then what difference does it make? Yeah. But you also want the blessings of the Vaishnavas. We also want to continue a culture that we already have. We also want to continue a culture that... A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada introduced to us who even performed the weddings himself. Yeah. And uh, let's let's continue that because in the third generation after, uh, it will disappear. Uh, someone can say it's not my culture. Uh, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we're, we're attracting many people of different cultures to, to join yeah. Krishna consciousness. That's not my culture. That's Indian culture. That's yeah. Indian ritual. Indian ritual. Well, then don't wear tilak <laughs> neck beads or use japa beads or worship Krishna. Mm. It's all Indian. You could argue that it's all Indian. Mm. However, if you accept that Krishna is universal, Krishna's name recited on beads is the universal practice for the, the age, which is the basic premise of, of ISKCON. If you accept that much, then surely to sit down with the love of your life for an hour in which various <laughs> Sanskrit prayers are chanted for your benefit yeah. and for your blessing while being surrounded by senior um, <laughs> practitioners who want to um, congratulate you to witness your vows yes. and to help you on your way in life. Right. What is the problem there? What is the problem? What's the difficulty? I, I agree. So you, you can have various forms, but we should get to know um, we should get to know uh, our particular form is known as Pancharatra. It is dictated by the Lord himself. It's a corollary of uh, Vedic, uh, Vedic culture. And it involves the worship of um, the worship of the Lord in his, uh, you know, in, in, in his form. And um, you know why not get to why not get to know that? Yeah. There's a lot of aspects that you know when a young couple get married, it's not that they always understand why the marriage has taken a certain form. If you if you're Jewish, you may not know why you crush the crush the glass at the end of the wedding. Mm. Um, if you're a Vaishnava, you may not know why it is that we have fire. Why do we have a pot and a coconut? You, you may not know these things. Mm. Um, but you should know that somebody does. And it may not be that you can be a 
uh, 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 that you can know everything when you're so young. So this is the way that a wedding has been handed down to us for thousands of years. Just take that and honor it and move forward with it and understand that that is the moment at which you are genuinely married, not when the government um, servant signs a particular form for you right. in the town hall. That's there as well. You can, you, you can do that as well. But don't get too excited about that particular ritual. Mm. Ten minutes of it. You know. right. It has its own particular form, and we need to do that. But um, there are some particular forms that we need to, to uh, keep. Sometimes people say to me, well, this is, uh, you know, it's kind of Hindu Shmendu stuff. Yeah. Besides, fire yagyas are not the process for the age. And I say... All you have to do is chant Hare Krishna. Chant Hare Krishna. But neither, is, n- neither are we saying that the fire yagya for the wedding is the process for the age. <laughs> but it is the process for weddings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not that you get wedded. It's not that you get married every day by fire yagya. And that's how you <laughs> we rise above the, 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 the difficulties of Kali Yuga. Mm. You know, we, 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 we chant the Lord's name every day. That's, that's what we do. But at one time in your life, on one morning or one afternoon of your life, why not do it properly? Now, there is a problem because, um, you know, sometimes uh, the senior leaders don't insist. And then the disciples live together. And there's always a good reason. Well, the parents couldn't come or this didn't happen. or They have to do this first or the visa requirements aren't there. So I see many supposedly good reasons but it's all contributing to a culture in which the wedding is is rapidly disappearing Mm. for the next generation and if it disappears this generation then it will be completely absent in the next and we we will have lost something yeah something i heard was that um you know they were uh, there was a huge marriage uh going down the street in india and there was a lot of fanfare and a huge thing expensive blah 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 yeah and someone said oh the reason they do this was so it's like a it's such a public thing it's like the whole town knows about it the whole the whole city knows about that you're getting married that you've made this vow in front of everyone and that's what keeps it together it's a reason to keep it together yeah. because you're you you've done it in front of everyone you've you've you know announced to the fact that i'm going to be live with this person and be faithful to them for my yeah. whole life so that keeps that's a big part of you know keeping the thing together is because you of your reputation and yeah. and whatnot because it was witnessed by everyone in the village right. by everyone in the town yeah i think and that's it also powerful. helps the other people in the town as well because they're also recommitting in their relationship to their own partners exactly through through your wedding so Tulsi always cries at weddings. There's a social, there's a social glue yeah. that's important. Because the commitment of marriage is, is a difficult one. Commitment to any of the ashrams is difficult. Yeah. If you're a brahmachari, the commitment is difficult. Being married is difficult. Being a sannyas is difficult. So you, you choose your fight. <laughs> but it will be difficult. So in order to help you, you need, uh, just like in Africa, they say it takes, it takes an entire village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And it takes an entire village to keep um, a man and a woman, you know, happily, uh, happily living together. A phenomenon I see nowadays as well is that 
a man will not be a grahastha nor will be he be living in the temple as a brahmachari and he wouldn't want to get because they don't want to get married because it's kind of a headache so it's just like this kind of fifth ashram where it's a a man in limbo type oh, kind of no, thing we have eight ashrams <laughs> eight ashrams eight ashrams we have the traditional four uh-huh. and then we have one in between each of them right so we have the brahmachari who's not quite married the bachelor then the um, the uh, you know the the, the the householder man who's not quite doing his duty as a householder but you know he's, he's traveling off and not being responsible All right before his before his scripturally ordained time of <laughs> age 50 or Panchodram Vanambra Jet <laughs> and we have the sannyasi who's not quite a sannyasi right so each of the ashrams has to behave within the boundaries within the perimeter of their prescribed behavior that's what makes for um, for uh, good culture but you know for people who say that it's too expensive I say uh, I, I say how expensive can it be you just need a place to, 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 to feed people you burn some sticks you pour on some ghee you throw in some seeds there's some fruit Mm-hmm. You know, expense should never be what we see in the the big wedding. Yeah, Kurta for every every grooms every forty groomsmen or forty groomsmen, everybody you know <laughs> tailored to perfection. <laughs> that wedding, that wedding we call the bunnier wedding. Yeah, it's a businessman's wedding. In other words, it's it's an upper middle class wedding in which thousands of dollars are spent, and uh, for that then the couple say well that's the sort of wedding that we want because that's how we do it properly yeah but we have to live together for the next three years in order to save up to get married three years from now yeah no <laughs> no don't yeah. do that yeah have a simple wedding burn some wood but get the blessings of the Vaishnavas in the beginning and then your three years you can save up for whatever you want to save up I think that's important that someone like you speaks like this because nowadays everyone's kind of real sensitive to tread carefully and not offend anyone or not say something that might be like you know uh, poking at someone's kind of uh, insecurities or something well we need both we need both Prabhupada one time he Shri Prabhupada was asked you know what, what does it mean to be a spiritual teacher and he gave the example of the pot waller in Vrindavan, he's making a pot, a lota, out of a sheet of metal. Mm. And he's making it with a hammer. And he's tap, 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 tap. Prabhupada said just little, little taps can make a sheet of metal become a pot. And he gestured with the pot. He said, but also, he said the man is taking his fist and he's putting the fist inside. So no fist, you won't get a pot. No tapping with a hammer, you won't get a pot. Both are required. Mm. So I think we have to be very, very sensitive to everyone's personal situation because these are difficult times, especially in the ashram change. Yes. Especially personal circumstances. We have to be very, very sensitive to the person's needs. Right. However, at the same time, there's also a place in spiritual life for confrontational um, uh, teaching. Yes. And sometimes people are very... um, you know, it's like if a if a person has a dislocated arm, maybe he's 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 played American football. <laughs> he has a dislocated arm. 
there's no nice way you can set a dislocated arm. It's going to be painful. Yeah. You know, you have to, the doctor has to say, okay, this is going to hurt. Right. And then he hurts you. But he did warn you, so you knew what was coming. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, a teacher may be very, very delicate, but in the same way as a doctor sometimes hurts in order to save and help in the long term. So the teacher may also speak in such a way to be, to be strong. So you've asked the questions, and I'm saying this, I'm, n I'm not directing it to any particular people in uh, uh, you know to people that I know right but it's just my general response to your question is that um, we have to preserve our culture we have to protect it now there are some things that are worth protecting and I think Sanatan culture our Dharma is worth protecting and if you if you look at our Shastras you, you will find that these, these are the way that you you, you do things mm. and it's, it's worth looking at them occasionally to know what it is that you have bought into. You haven't just bought into adding a bead bag for, you know, an hour a day in your house and then the rest of the time you lead a, a, the life of your choosing. But um, Vedic culture, Vaishnav culture, has something to say about how you eat, where you eat, who you eat with, what time of the morning you get up, how you, uh, how you lead your life, what occupation you choose, who you marry, how you marry, how you conceive children. There is something that is guidance there Yes. for, for all those um, things. And it's all leading us upwards from ignorance to passion to goodness, the three qualities of nature which we're trying to, the first two we're trying to, you know, to, to elevate ourselves beyond. So we can help ourselves a lot more than we are by just taking guidance. Definitely. That's brilliant advice. Um, let's go to our um, quick fire round. Mm. We are we're coming over to the to the end now. I mean, I I could talk to you all day. This is really really uh, brilliant stuff. Um, if you were on an island and you could only bring three things, what things would you bring? Oh, picture of Panchatattva, Bhagavad Gita, and a bead bag. Wonderful. Wonderful. Tell us. Oh. If you if you had a million dollars, I'm not going to say one a million dollars. What? Okay. What would you use it for? First of all, if it was, you know, I don't know, like first for society or for yourself, you could answer in both ways. Good question. Mm. If I had a million dollars, um, there are um, there are people in. Uh, my country in the UK who have um, been very dedicatedly following the path of Krishna consciousness and it would mean so much to them if they had a place where they could congregate. So I can, I can think a million dollars would go uh, quite a way towards um, providing them with spaces in which kirtan could be done. Wonderful. Just, just a space, spaces for kirtan. At least four. I think a million could get me at least four. <laughs> Your top three pet peeves. A top three pet peeves? Yeah. About? Just in general. Um, pet peeves are postmodernism, being a, a raft of uh, political ideas which is tending towards um, a way of life which is set about unraveling 
a lot of the culture that we have uh, developed, mm-hmm. a lot of the good things that have developed both in uh, in the United States and uh, in in Western Europe. Um, I would say uh, misunderstandings about um, uh, our cultural patterns within our Krishna consciousness movement, and um, I say just my my pet peeve is is that we all live too short, hmm. too short of life. <laughs> and that, yeah. that, that, at my age, at 62, that really bothers me. Yes. Because there's so much that I would like to, to do. Yes. I may, go, may not get the chance to do it or see the results of it. Right. So that really peeves me. Right. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dad. appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Yes, a, a brilliant interview. Uh, if someone wants to get in contact with you, how can they do that the uh, best? Well, best is KM Dasa. K-M-D-A-S-A. D-A-S-A at gmail. At gmail.com. And, uh, or they can watch me uh, on uh, Mayapur TV every Monday evening at uh, UK time, 7.30. Okay, Mayapur.tv. Yeah. Um, you do your own inter. You do your own um, sort of a podcast it's, type well, thing. It's, it's a broadcast. It's a a broadcast. broadcast. There's f- 15, 20 minutes of um, philosophy to begin with to warm everyone up. Brilliant. And then there's a chat box. You can put your own question and you can come in and um, I'll answer the questions live. Every Monday, 7.30 UK time. London time. London time, 7.30 p.m. every Monday, mypur.tv. That's brilliant. This book you can get on Amazon, I believe. The Guru and Disciple Book by Kripa Moedas. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Haribo. 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 Haribo.